Hey, how you doing? What's going on? It's me, David. I have this podcast, and it's called Let's Face the Facts, and it's uh, this thing where I'm an actor in Orlando, Florida, and I'm clearly not well. I'm way too obsessed with the facts of life to the point that I'm actually following through with a crazy idea of sitting down with friends from the Central Florida arts community to share in this extremely unhealthy obsession. So welcome. Glad you joined me. My guest this week is Brett Walden. He and I used to work together at Universal a few years back at an attraction called Disaster, which is sadly no longer there anymore. Uh, Our paths seem to keep crossing like they do when you're both performers. And uh, he's super duper talented. I'm a big fan of his as well as his super duper lovely talented wife, Gemma. He and I talk about all the different stuff he does, as well as Season 1, Episode 6, Emily Dickinson. Original air date was March 14th, 1980. And I will preface this by saying I had no idea that Brett, who had never watched an episode of this show ever, was not even familiar with it, that he would be introduced to the facts of life by this episode in which he discovered a very deep personal connection. It's very bizarre, and I can't wait for for you to hear about it. So let's do this. Let's jump on in. This is me with Brett Walden. I am here with Brett Walden. He is comfy. He's sitting crisscross applesauce on the couch in my office. Feeling good. You nice and comfy? I am. I want to make sure that you are, after how uncomfortable I gathered this episode made you. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we certainly will. We have just finished watching episode 1.6, Emily Dickinson. And uh, before we get started, what I always ask my guests to mm-hmm. do is, if you could please give me a two or three sentence synopsis of the episode, like like if it were a Wikipedia entry or a, a TV guide listing. The elevator pitch? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> of what we just watched. Uh, let's see. The, um, hmm, through, through a bunch of forced jokes <laughs> <laughs> and jokes that didn't actually exist, yes. but still received laughter, um, Blair, mm-hmm. the pretty one, um, steals a poem and passes it off as her own. Mm-hmm. And nobody in this world is educated enough to know the difference. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> she steals a famous, famous <laughs> yes. poem from a famous yes. poetress. Um, and then she uh, admits it at the end and um, immediately absolves herself of any guilt. Yeah. And uh, we end on a high five. Yep. <laughs> if they could punch and jump in the air and have it freeze frame, yeah. they, they would have. Yeah. That's funny. You are not the first person to in- include commentary and opinion in your synopsis of the episode about how (laughs) stilted and clumsy some of this is um yeah episode season one we're we're in the heat of it now kids we really are uh so uh let's get into well let's let's start with a little bit of brett walden okay brett yeah who is brett walden where are you originally from Mm, um i originally I, i was born in nebraska 
mm-hmm. um, Omaha, and then uh, but I was moved um, somewhat against my will. I was three months old oh. uh, to Colorado. You where didn't I, have much say. No. I didn't have much say, um, but I lived there for eighteen years, and then um, in Colorado, just outside of Boulder. And then I went to college back at Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, and then since then I've I went to grad school in LA, and I've lived in New York, and now I'm here. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of been coast to coast, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Now it, I know you mostly as an actor performer, mm-hmm. and my realization of your art skills came later. What did you actually study, or did you study both? Theater. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, I've been drawing since I was about five or six, mm-hmm. uh, but that was always kind of more of a hobby yeah. kind of thing. And so I um, went through a period, especially right after or right before I was about to graduate high school, I had to decide what my major was going mm-hmm. to be, or at least I thought I did. Yeah. It turns out you don't have yeah. to. <laughs> it turns out you don't have to decide what now. you're going to do for the rest of your life you when you're just, 17. Yeah. Yeah. But I felt like I had to. And yeah. so it came down to either theater, which I was doing since mm-hmm. about seventh grade, or drawing since I was like five. Um, and I went to see a production of The Scarlet Pimpernel at the Denver Center for Performing Arts. Mm-hmm. And happened to be on that particular night, they do the um, Madame Guillotine song. Mm-hmm. And then the the Pimpernel comes in and he picks up a basket and during one of his numbers, he's supposed to take the head out uh-huh. and uh, sing to it or something. And there was a light, a lighting gel stuck to the face oh, no. of this prop head. <gasps> and so, yeah. And so it was, and so he looked at it and he recognized it and he improvised a line and he took the gel off and he threw it in the basket, gave it a kiss and continued. And something about that moment struck me oh. as... Uh, you know, I was just like, oh, you can do that, <laughs> you know? And especially with like the improv of the moment, yeah. it was just like, for some reason, I walked out of that particular performance. It was like, I'm going to do theater and nice. I'll just draw casually. Nice. Um, and so I went to college for theater. I went to grad school for theater um, and then just kind of... And you still draw. And then now, I just draw. Now, I've been drawing since I was like five or six years old. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't draw nearly as well as you do. Oh. I, I want to draw as well as you. <laughs> well, thank I, you. I look at your art and I'm like, that's the type of thing I wish I could do. And yeah. I would have to work very hard at this point. Because once I got into theater, the drawing just went out the window. Once right. I started performing and doing that was the other thing in high school. I never stopped. Yeah. And... I did it on the side, like in college for my chorus, I would design the t-shirts. Mm-hmm. I still do graphic design of friends' posters and stuff, but that right. doesn't always involve the drawing end. I'm you know, a big fan uh, of your your artwork, your style, the the sort of cartoony aesthetic of it is really oh, thank you. very fun. Yeah, so it's always been sort of casual, um, and I think that's what allowed me to continue doing it even, even throughout my mm-hmm. theater career. Yeah. Um, and then I would always try to incorporate the two together, you know, so whether it was puppetry or just finding different ways to kind of incorporate and especially doing improv and stuff, you know, it, it, there, there, there are opportunities to kind of draw, Mm -hmm. um, within it or find, you know, uh, different, different avenues in, in which to, you know, and people generally tend to be very, um, surprised and pleased when you can, (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, no. draw live in front of them, and you know, uh, yeah. and, and do something like that. So it's it's very theatrical in its own right. I I agree. I have a bit that I do. I was always good at drawing cartoons of other things. Like I could draw the Flintstones. I could draw right. Garfield, and that was always a big thing at parties or 
a good way to distract myself and neighbors during class at school. Yeah. Um, so I did have the wherewithal to morph that into a bit that I do when I perform on the streets of Hollywood, where I do a bit where I set up a chalkboard. Mm-hmm. I sit a kid in a folding chair and he can't see me. I'm just looking. It's like an artist in the canvas. I'm looking at the kid making faces, holding up my thumb like I'm measuring and drawings. And then what I'll do is I'll draw Mickey Mouse right. or I'll draw <laughs> or for like, you know, if it's a little boy and I can tell he's a little bit of a, of a pill, I'll draw Stitch. Right. So I taught myself to draw the uh, Disney characters since this is on the streets of Disney. I'm yeah. like, well, we're staying on brand here. <laughs> no one will complain. Um, and I start doing that. And it it is very true that um, even even the lowest grade drawing skill, people act like yeah. you've split an atom. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. when And people like watching the fact that I do it with fairly simple lines and not many strokes. The people are fascinated with just watching the picture build and emerge. Yeah. It's, like you say, there's a, there's a theatricality about it. And this little bit that I do, it delights people so far beyond anything I ever imagined. I was just like, and I some, literally was, I need to do something because there's a noisy show going on at the end of the street. Right. And I need to do something that's a silent bit. I can't make any noise because no one would hear me. Yeah. So I do it as a silent bit. And, and it sometimes it can be a bigger response than anything that you could possibly come up with oh. improv-wise or theatrically, where, you know, where it's just like, it's almost, I mean, it's it's fun, but it's almost disappointing mm-hmm. sometimes where it's just like, oh, that's... That's what gets you excited? Yeah. It's just <laughs> watching me put a few lines down on paper. You know, yeah. this is what I do all the time. And, yeah. You know, and I suppose, you know, and it's nothing to say, you know, I'm not talking about quality or anything, but it is it is fairly simple for me to envision something and transfer yeah. it onto the page. Whether it's good or not is up to, you know, the the individual looking at it. But the, the ease at which I'm able to do it and the relative r- response to it is uh-huh. so much greater. It's just like, ugh. Yeah. Oh God, I'm, I work so so hard in my other jobs to get this same response. Oh, exactly. Yes, <laughs> so true. I find that, um, and and it's easy. I think for us as artists to take our our skills and our talents for granted because we've always had them. Right. We've worked on them. We cultivated them, and after a while, it just becomes what we do. It's who we are. Yeah. I I've frequently commented that one of the bits I do at Sleuth's Mystery Dinner Theater is we're doing a show that's a simulated wedding. So I pick a guy out of the audience, set him up, give him instructions to get backstage, and he plays the groom. Mm-hmm. I'm playing the best man, and he has to pretend he's drunk. So we've got him in a groom's coat and a hat and sunglasses. We put a bottle of rum of, of vodka in his hand. So he looks like that. So I just say, hey, you can just weave about, be unsteady on your feet. I'll do all the work to make it look like I'm propping you up, like you're going to fall over. So right. I'm doing all the physical work of looking and pretending like I got to hold him. And I'll yeah. typically have to have my arms around their torso every time. It surprises me. Their hearts are beating a mile, a minute. Sure, yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Getting on a stage in front of a room <laughs> yeah. full of people is a big deal to this some. This is terrifying what we do. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I used to do the pre-show before Fantasmic. I used to perform for 8,000 people five nights a week yeah. with, with two other actors. But it's like, I take that for, it's just like, oh, that's just what I do. That's, yeah. that's nothing. Yeah. So then when they come up to you afterwards, the people watching, and they're like, oh, my God, great. 
it's almost like a for what? What did I? You yeah. know, but it's oh, but it's true. That? There's yeah. yeah, or worse, it's like oh that that was awful. That yeah. was one of the <laughs> that was the worst show I did this week. <laughs> yeah. Oh that, God. Yeah. yeah. I've that, had that. That thing where I made, you know, 80% of an 8,000-seat arena laugh at something. It's like, yeah. oh, that wasn't. I yeah. did that joke funnier on Monday. Right. I could have done better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, if you'll allow me, I can segue this into our episode. Please do. Okay. I would love it. So, and I, I, I went back and forth as I was watching the episode of whether or not I would tell this story. But I Please will. Please do. For the sake of your show. So in college... Um, like I said, I was a theater major at Nebraska, um, and I would often read the Daily Nebraskan, which was the student newspaper, uh-huh. still going. And um, the editorial cartoons, or not the editorial cartoons, they were great. But the the other illustrations within the paper, like for margins or advertising or whatever, were um, decidedly not good. Mm-hmm. And so I got tired of just complaining about it to whoever would listen. And I think finally one of my friends was like, if you think you can do better, then go apply. And so I went down to the office of the Daily Nebraskan and I said, um, I want to be your illustrator. These aren't good. And they said, well, our um, editorial cartoonist is actually graduating after this year and we're going to need a new one. Oh, Would you like to apply for that? And so I was like, okay. So they said, you know, draw us a couple of batches of ideas that you might have now and we'll Whatever, whatever. So um, I drew up some cartoons, never having done it before, no experience with it, never really paying attention to the news like that. But um, but I so I drew up like eight or something, turned them in. Immediately they were like, "Yep, you're our new editorial cartoonist, uh, starting next year." So all of a sudden, it's like I had to start paying attention to what was oh. going on um, in the news and stuff. And there was a time where I would look at other editorial cartoons to see what they were writing about. Yeah. And there was a day that I was on a deadline and I had nothing else to say and I didn't know what to write about. And so I took an idea Mm -hmm. from... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from another editorial you, you, cartoonist. You borrowed it. I borrowed an idea. Illegally, yes. And um, turned it in and thought nothing of it until my editor came back to me a few months later and said, hey, you remember that cartoon? Uh, we submitted it to the collegiate like <gasps> editorial cartoonist like society, and you won second place oh, no. for best cartoonist in the country. Oh, Shit. And I had a Blair moment where I was like, oh, oh no, no. <laughs> why was it that one? Wow. Um, so, so as, as far-fetched as it seems, it, I went through this exact same process that, that is Blair did. unbelievable. And, and we did f- not plan this. This is no. just a random no. scheduling wise. You were just the next one I signed up yep. with a time the, slot. This and this is, is the, how it landed. This is the first that time, is amazing. This is the first time I've ever talked about it. Wow. So... I'm so honored. <laughs> wow. Blair won third place. I won second place. You won second, though. So Brett's better than Blair. <laughs> Don't ever forget that. Um, wow, what a perfect segue. I know. Because we're about to talk about... I still want to talk a little bit more about you. Um, but we'll do that on the commercial break. Okay. So we begin the show. It is Sunday night. And like Sunday night at a girls prep school, the male headmaster is hanging out in the dormitory. Okay. So what... Explain this to me because I've never seen the show. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. We we yeah. didn't. We did kind of gloss. Your segue was so perfect. Yeah. Typically, I ask people, "Do you have a history? Do you know the show?" No, I know it through um, other pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I- any reference to? 
the facts of life through other shows. I'm I'm tangentially aware of it because yeah. you're only in your early 30s, right? Yeah, mid, well, mid 30s, mm-hmm. um, mid, early mid 30s. Is it 36? <laughs> oh no, that's the late mid. That's late mid 30s. You're in your late mid 30s. Um, but um, yeah, so so I don't I don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. <laughs> you are not alone. I have many notes to myself because the structure of this show so fluctuates. They're, show, they're, they're spitballing so much. Right. Um, now, Mr. Bradley is the headmaster of the school. Okay. And yet all he's talking about is this big poetry assignment. Yeah. And I want those on my desk uh, on my desk tomorrow because you should be working on your poem. It's like, you're, you're the headmaster. You're not a teacher. Yeah, Typically they, headmasters are not they teachers. They definitely sold him like he was. I, I, in fact, the first word I wrote was teacher. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was, the question mark was not, is he a teacher, but why is he here? Yeah. Thank you. I was getting a weird, like, Mr. Feeney vibe from Boy Meets World, where it's just like, why is the teacher constantly hanging out with... In their lives. In their lives. I don't know that show at all, but It seems unnatural. That's a very television-y trope of the whole thing. So he's the headmaster. He's the headmaster of the school. Did not get that. And this one poem is half of their grade? Is that that what he said? Yeah. It's a half of their grade, and then later... It isn't until the very, very end when he tells Blair she's going to flunk English Lit. It's like, ah, it's for an English Lit class. Right. It's not for a poetry writing class. (laughs) It's for English Lit. So all the other books that you've been reading and doing book reports on and learning about, nope, not important. That's only 50% of your grade. It's just this one poem that he then goes on to grade on a curve. Yeah, which we'll we'll get to. Okay, so... uh, so so what so what what's the other thing? You you they live in a dormitory. This is a girls' school. Okay, it is an all girls' school, uh, which baits the question: Who is Jason, and how did he get there, and what is he doing there? First Jason of all, is this boy. Yeah, that Blair is romantically involved with, and we learn that in she is heavy quotes. Heavy quotes. <laughs> Jason, Jason is not into that relationship as much as the writers want us to believe. Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> that actor was struggling. Yeah. And wow. <laughs> and the deal is he's supposed to be playing Romeo to Blair's Juliet. Now this is the second time so far in the series we have alluded to Blair being an actress. Mm-hmm. Blair already has the snobby, pretty, rich girl thing going on, and she is rocking it. She is doing it well to the point that between season one and two, when they fire five of the eight girls right. and then add a new one, Blair is one of them that survives yeah. that big, massive cut because Lisa Welch is so fucking good. She's amazing. Yeah. And the, the sad thing is... Later, it's Tootie, the one on roller skates. Mm-hmm. That is the one that eventually is the girl that wants to become an actress. And they, they do commit pretty well to that. But right now, Tootie is still too young. She's 12. Yeah. The actress is 10, playing 12, which is why she's on the roller skates. That's to make her look taller. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you're, you don't know this. I, I love don't that know I'm anything. I'm bringing this information to you. Although I will say the, the, the um, Kim Field's probably the highlight of the episode. Agreed. Like, still, she's 10 years old. She's 10. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and holding her own. Yeah. With the, and she's probably one of the most seasoned, experienced actors of all of them, other than Charlotte Ray. She probably has more cred than Mr. 
Mr. Right. Bradley, Mr. Bradley. At this, <laughs> looking at his his talent level. But um, anyway, so Blair is rocking a very unusual comb over braid, very low part hairstyle that I don't think we ever see again. And I think that is all the better for the world. Had you seen it before? Uh, no, I don't think we ever saw her with okay. this thing. She always has an off-center part or whatever. I don't know what they were trying to I do. I notice it's very low. It's very Trumpian. Very como. It's, it looks like a comb-over. Yeah. And it's like, why? Yeah. She's a teenager and she has a full head of beautiful hair. Especially, um, you know, not to jump too much to the end, but especially in the context of a show where you're very specifically going to point out her hair and her beauty. Yeah. And <laughs> as they're talking about it, you know, her cascading hair over her shoulders. Yeah. You are forced to look at the top of her head and go, oh, what is that? Is that <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> so, but that, so that's new for this episode, too. And I think it's a one-shot deal. I don't believe we ever see this hair again. Uh, another good example of how the show is spitballing is the character of Molly, Molly Ringwald's character. Mm-hmm. She, in the backdoor pilot from Different Strokes, is the chatterbox. Then in the first couple of episodes, she's not. I noted in a recent, either the four or five, they were trying to get her back into chatterbox mode. Right. And now in this one, she's not chatterbox mode. She's um, a political activist, Molly. Yeah, she I was says, say, she, she was... says male chauvinist pig. Yeah. And she says something about exploiting the working class. Right. 2D wants to keep the tip that she somehow got from a, a waitress. Mm-hmm. So it's... um. Suddenly they're trying to position Molly as as an as the politically conscious one and it's they're still spitballing and it still ain't quite working. Yeah, so it sounds like from episode to episode they're just they're just trying. Yeah. They're just throwing everything at the wall. The things that do clearly come into focus and remain so are Lisa Welchel as Blair being the snobby rich girl, Tootie being the youngest and and the cutest. They use her so much yeah. for being the youngest. They use her a lot. Yeah. And this is another episode where, you know, it's Blair's episode, but Tootie is right there behind her. She's oh, yeah. got more lines than Mrs. Garrett. And she's complicit in the entire thing. Yeah. And suffers no consequence for that. <laughs> and benefits. Benefits from it. She benefits she from gets, it. And yeah. nobody, here's the thing. Overall, like, Given everything that we've already just talked about, about clearly they were still trying to figure things out. But from like a narrative standpoint, there was just nothing keeping it together Mm -hmm. from from the the premise of nobody apparently having ever read Emily Dickinson before. Yeah, that literally I mean, I wouldn't expect any of the girls to know who Emily Dickinson was. I wouldn't necessarily expect. um, What's her name? Mrs. Garrett, Mrs. Garrett to know. No. Right? But Bradley yeah. should at least start to suspect. Yeah. And then when he sends it to a, a poem, like, you know, like a poetic society. Yeah. And they don't recognize Nobody it. in that. It's like, like, really, yeah, guys? It just, it's, it, it, it starts really? to, yeah, you, you just start to go, this is just lazy writing. Exactly. Now. It, it is. You're just advancing the plot for the sake of advancing, you know, because you need to get through it. But you, you haven't really, I wrote something else too. Oh, um. When they start, first of all, Tootie not brushing her teeth. Why put a toothbrush in her hand? There's oh, just there's oh, nothing on yeah, there. Yeah, just a prop to hold. And she in keeps hand. touching her neck with it <laughs> I didn't throughout even the notice. entire scene. Like she's, I didn't notice that she's just she's flinging it around. Luckily, there's <laughs> nothing on it, so she's not going to get toothpaste anywhere. And then she keeps touching her neck, and I was just like, "Stop it!" So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, but then they make this like 
Faustian bargain where where Blair's going to be her white maid. Yeah. And she exchange. comments, I have a white maid. Yeah, which and she makes the joke. It's kind of a good laugh. It's I, it's a good joke. I support it. Especially back then. Um, yeah. You know, for, for a cute little 12-year-old to say. Yeah. But uh, Blair hasn't done anything at that point. Yeah. You know she could have I mean? changed her mind. She could have literally just said, a poem. forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Or written a crappy poem. It's yeah. like Tootie, she's she's lucky that Blair went with it because she was pressing her luck. Yeah. I want agreed. you to wash my I want you to clean my room. Clean I want you to make my bed. And press my uniform. I want you to press my uniform, right? Yeah. She's pushing it hard yeah. for something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, that's oof. And it would have been an easy fix, literally, to have Tootie just walk in on Blair copying the poem. Yeah. Having just You're finished. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Why are you why yeah. It would have raised the stakes a bit for Blair to be like, oh, no. Yeah. You know, but instead it was like, I'm thinking of doing this. You're right. Oh, that's right. And by the way, I just recognized out loud that you cannot keep a secret. Yeah, I know. But my, I knowingly just told yeah, the, I'm you trying know. to buy your silence that I know I will never get. And and, you're, and the thing is that Tootie is the nosy one. She's the little, the little busybody. So yeah. her walking in or snooping or skating past Blair and seeing the same words, that totally would have been right. absolutely in line with the show. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've gone off and commented on things. Let's get back to just the fact that linearly the plot we're talking about is that um, Blair is in the play with this dude, Jason. She's doing Romeo and Juliet. Right. They have these poems. Blair tells Tootie she's thinking of copying a poem. Mm-hmm. Tootie says, oh, well, to buy my silence, you need to do these things for me. Right. Blair goes ahead and does it. She turns it in. Mr. Bradley <laughs> shows up with the grades. And again, you go to the girl's dorm and announce their grades. Yeah. Like you do. Everything well, happens. We had a parents. Uh, we had just last week, we had um, a career night. Mm-hmm. And they set up folding chairs in that in living the, room. Right. And that's where career night, it's like, you don't have an, a classroom or yeah. an auditorium? Couldn't build that set. Nope, couldn't, no budget. No. And he walks in without knocking always. Yeah. Which is weird. It's, yeah, it's kind of like the lobby of a hotel, I guess. Yeah. But there is still just the weirdness of a man walking in on it. So Blair gets an A+. All of the other girls get C's because he decides to grade on a curve because Blair's poem was so, so beyond good. And the words that he uses are um, eloquence and simplicity. Mm. Like that is the, this is the resounding praise he has for her. And um, we also need to bookmark, we've also touched upon on this podcast, who is in what class? All of these girls had to turn in poems. Right. What are their ages? They're all different ages. Why is 12-year-old Tootie in an English lit class with 17-year-old Nancy and 16-year-old Blair? <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. Michael Wanzi put it best. He's like, okay, Little House in the Prairie, I get it. There's one schoolhouse in a 100-mile radius right. and 12 kids in the town. Right. But this is like the same thing where you're like, it's just lazy that... You know, oh, we just, oh, all the girls are involved. It's just, it's like, it's almost this hubris of the writers where it's like, you're going to accept whatever we give you. And if we throw a laugh track on it, you're going to accept that that was just a joke. Mm-hmm. Even if one didn't exist. Yeah. And there's plenty of examples in this in this particular episode where there wasn't a punchline. Yeah. And they just inserted a laugh and moved on. Like, yeah. that was the funniest, and I, you know. I have to admit, I was not as aware of the laugh track. For, for some reason in my brain, 
and this is this is me repeating myself, and I will repeat myself many, many, many times. To me, a laugh track is like Barney Miller. It was a really hollow, echoey, artificial thing. Mm-hmm. Legitimately, you are the third person to point out the laugh track. And I'm like, oh, is it a laugh track? I really didn't think it was. To me, it sound it sounds genuine, but I think I am wrong. I'm slowly learning that. I mean, if th- you're even, right, that this shit isn't that funny. Even if <laughs> it's even <laughs> if it is like a live studio audience, you know, at the very least, there are elements where they are probably taking laughter from other parts of yeah. the script and inserting it in. Because this is, I mean, this is impossible. She yeah. says he breaks the TV. And he and and uh, Mrs. Garrett says, "Did you fix fuse boxes as a kid?" And nobody laughs because 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 the punchline hasn't happened yeah. yet. But it's so manufactured yeah. that by the time he goes, "No, I didn't," and then she says something like, "Oh, well, that that'll work out for us then." And then there's this huge explosion of laughter, which yeah. it's like that's that's not a joke. Yeah, there's literally no joke yeah. there. So I think. I think maybe part of the journey of this podcast is me discovering that the innocence of my youth, assuming that that was real people laughing right. and that, or that at least presuming my own sophistication of being able to detect a sound, a laugh track is clearly not what I think it is. Yeah. Um, so the girls are graded on a curve. They all get C's. So now they're not only getting bad grades, they are mad at Blair. And I'm going to point out earlier episode, Sue Ann is the smartest girl in school and gets the best grades. Sue Ann got a C minus. Which one is that? The one with the long blonde hair, Ooh. not in a braid. Oh, okay. The, the long blonde hair. The braid hair. one was the sporty one. She's the, she's the tomboy. Cindy is the tomboy. Right. That's Cindy. Yeah. So, um... On top of Blair getting a good grade and all her friends being mad at her for blowing the grade curve, Mr. Bradley says they're entering the poem in the New York State Poetry Festival. It's the realest part of the episode. That's I, I cannot believe that you actually have the story. <laughs> now, the difference you have is that political cartoons, mm-hmm. I remember in Mad Magazine, there was one point they picked two or three different political cartoons that mirrored covers of Mad Magazine. Like there was one where Alfred E. Newman starts putting on makeup and ends up looking like Tootsie from the movie Tootsie. Right. And there was a political cartoon of Reagan putting on makeup and ending up Margaret Thatcher. Right, right, right. right. And it was stuff like that where um, Mad Magazine was kind of like, haha, check out these political cartoons. We did it first. Right. So there is some degree of like, well... News happens, and our artists have ideas, and Brett might have had the same idea as this other dude. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and certainly, I mean, you see it more and more now with, you know, uh, so many outlets for comedy, especially oh, yeah. in College Humor and YouTube and Daily Show and SNL, and it's, it's, hard, it's hard to come up with an original idea just because um, sometimes the joke is the joke. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and especially, and, you know, and the same can be said for... Uh, political cartoons and commentary where it's just like sometimes there's only one thing that you can really say or a variation on one story that you can come up with, you know? So there is a little more wiggle room with some of those things and it's harder to prove. Yeah, Um, exactly. Mine, very definitely, I read a cartoon and went, I I like what they're saying and I just did 
a, a very slight variation on the same thing. Why, why not? not? I'll tell you why not. <laughs> because that's the one that gets sent to Washington. Yeah. That's that the one that gets sent to New crazy. York. Crazy. <laughs> um, so, you know, I have a lot of notes here about the plot, and really, they're not really that important other than Blair confesses to Mrs. Garrett. Yeah. And Mrs. Garrett helps her to see that there's really no other way out other than to confess to the authorities, to Mr. I'm sorry, to Mr. Bradley. He's not really an authority. I like the police. Um, and um, so Blair decides to, but Mr. Bradley shoves her out the door to go rehearse with that dude, Jason, where, again, where is he from? There's, you, you know, you have to rehearse the, the, so they're in the school play. Later, we learn of this other place called Bates Academy, where there's a bunch of boys. Ooh. And so, like, if there's a dance going on, it's like, ooh, the boys from Bates are going to be there. Right. That happens in the next... I don't know if that ever happens in season one, but in season two. And twice, they try backdoor pilots to try and do uh, boys' facts of life at Bates Academy. Really? And uh, Jimmy Bayo was the star. They were trying to push for that. And that would have been right... That would have been right around when Soap was going off the air. Okay. So it would have been right around that time when he was still, like, you know, in the 15, 16 range. Uh, range. Right. Um, so, and then neither of them worked. So I don't know where this kid comes from. He doesn't go to Eastland. Eastland is a girl's school. Yeah. Why the school is doing Romeo and Juliet, where this, where they've bust this boy, this boy in from, we don't really quite know. No, and anyone with a cursory knowledge of Romeo and Juliet will know that there's not just one uh, boy yeah. on that show. yeah. There's, there's many boys. There's many, yeah. Many boys. <laughs> we have um, we have a, a humdinger of an episode coming up in a future season where they're doing a production of South Pacific. Ooh. And at no point do we ever see any boy, ever. <laughs> like, it's it's about them wanting to play the part of Nellie Forbush. And in a rehearsal, just standing there alone. Some enchanted evening, <laughs> you may see a stranger. And it's like... Um, who is she singing to? And yeah. why are you rehearsing Nellie Forbush standing alone? Anyway, yeah. that's neither here. That's that's. Well, there. obviously it was a flimsy premise to justify them kissing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Romeo and, and Juliet kissing. Yeah. And to justify Blair being into boys yeah. at the beginning. And then when after the the mess has been made... They go out and he tries to kiss her and Blair can't get into it. Blair, her conscience is so guilty. She can't enjoy a boy kissing her. She's the poor thing. I feel so bad. God, and I I would feel worse for her if she was into it during the first scene. Yeah. Which she also wasn't. (laughs) So she kind of negates their own point there because she was also trying to throw him off in the first one and he was not listening to her. Yeah, we were we were approaching a Me Too moment. There. <laughs> yes, we were. Um, and we've had others already on the show <laughs> that were full-blown Me Too moments. Um, so, yeah. Then uh, the girls are writing their poems, so they're pissed off because they all have to rewrite their poems. Yep. Blair confesses to them. The girls let her have it. And uh, Blair does push back a little bit. Then she does say, I've got it coming. It's okay. I've had it coming. This I deserve. Yeah. Then Mr. Bradley shows up with the poem winning third prize in this New York State contest. People judging poetry don't recognize a poem copied from Emily Dickinson. Emily 
Dickinson. Yeah. Nobody, nobody recognizes it. How many obscure poets are out there that one could copy and probably nobody would be the wiser? I feel like in that sequence, one of the girls mentions another poet. Yeah, Elizabeth Barrett. She says, well, if it isn't, Elizabeth Barrett Brown knows. Right. It's a pun. Yeah. Yeah. But it also betrays a knowledge that apparently isn't there for all poems. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you know who that was, but you can't recognize an Emily Dickinson poem? Yeah. And if you're if you're forcing them to write a poem that is, again, half their grade, Oof. have you not studied? Po- did you not take them through some poems and did they not study some? And did yeah. if you're studying poetry, <laughs> did Emily Dickinson not come up in the conversation? Apparently not. Oh, sweet Jesus. Um so uh, Blair does a, Blair has written a poem. It's yes. kind of an apology. And it's called Reflections. Mm. And she does elaborate on her guilt. And then it turns into a, a vanity poem about looking in the mirror and seeing where is those beautiful eyes, those pearly white teeth, the luxurious hair. And then at the very end, she says to Mrs. Garrett, well, I've gotten all of my guilt out. Yep. So Blair, how do you feel? And she says, beautiful. And looks in the mirror and is like, I'm back. <laughs> and, and that's like you said, it's like, no. No. You, you don't get to feel better at the end of this. Yeah, especially after six seconds of feeling bad. Yeah. I mean, literally. And even like, even one of the other girls immediately feels bad for her. Yeah. When the consequences start coming down, he's like, you're going to fail. Yeah. And she's like, oh, no, Blair. Yeah, it was just like sucks. two minutes ago. You were reading her. You, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were ready to string her up, and all yeah. of a sudden, you know, I don't know. It's uh, just it's it's writing. It's just bad writing. It is, and uh, yeah. And she so Blair's punishment is she does get punished. She cannot do the play. Yep. She's grounded for a month, and she will be flunking English lit. Mm. And you know, will parents be notified? That was always the big thing was we have to notify your parents. Oh, oh no, no, no. Well, here's there's the thing. no talk of that. If you had asked me what they were doing there, um, just in general, I would have said, uh, girls orphanage. Oh. <laughs> that, that's what I would have said. Girls orphanage. At no point would I have thought that that was a school a or some school. sort of, yeah, dorm- <clears throat> dormitory setting. I would yeah. have said, well, clearly they have to keep coming to them in this living room because it's an orphanage. It's an <laughs> That's amazing. There's nowhere else for them to go. Well, one thing that relates to that is when the two new producers were brought in for season two, Linda Marsh and Margie Peters, Mm -hmm. one of the sort of rules that they handed down was they said, this is a girl's school and they're not dressing like a girl's school. You only see a, a uniform occasionally. And they said, we need to fix that. We need the show to look like what it's supposed to be. One of the reasons why the girls were getting all lost was because of all the different outfits and and all that. I mean, you'd think that would have made them more distinct, but they weren't. We still have yeah. these this lack of archetype and all that. So starting in season two, you see a lot more them wearing their uniforms a lot more. Right. And it does definitely give it a more polished look, more of a sense of formality yeah, uh, rules and and structure. So it sounds like they just they brought common sense into the show. Uh, yeah, and said if this is what you want to do, then w- we got to do it. Yeah, if this is a girls' school, then let's have them dress like friggin' students. Yeah. and then the next, the subsequent seasons, the primary location is the cafeteria of the school, which oh. is you know a big gathering place 
but they also live there, and through a series of mishaps, they have to work there. Okay. <clears throat> but we don't get that in, in my in my episode. No, nope. Brett Walden, you do not get, we get that. We get Blair admitting that she copied the poem, and Mrs. Garrett says... It's worse. It's like stealing. Yeah. As the camera dramatically zooms in on her face. Yes. For some reason. For some reason. To tell us that it's dramatic. Yes. And then and then she turns to Blair and says, did you happen to read it? Yeah. And Blair's answer is essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. Yeah. She has no point. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> she doesn't follow up with, a, well, if you had really read it, you would know that the poem is about... Um, the opposite of what you did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, yeah, or, it, it seems like she's setting up some lesson, but she literally was just like, did you read the poem you copied? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. Maybe good. you should tell somebody about it. Yeah. And then at the end, she says something about like, well, now you are beautiful again, hearkening back to the supposed lesson. But again, there there wasn't one. It, it's just like this weird, I don't know what the writers were doing. Yeah. But they, they, they weren't paying attention to their own story. You have to wonder, like, when you do a spinoff show, you do, I think, have to mine your writers from the original. Like, I, right. I remember uh, Joan Collins talking about that for her, Dynasty stopped being fun because they spun off and did a show called The Colbys about uh, one little branch of the family. Mm-hmm. And according to Joan Collins, she said... All everyone on the creative team was suddenly putting all their energy into that other show, and we were being neglected, and our quality dropped. Right. You wonder if this show, you know, in the rush to put something together to get it out, because um, the Different Strokes ran a regular season until May, uh, presumably, until April or May, like a TV season would. Yeah. This show premiered... In August, they okay. ran four episodes, went on a six-month hiatus, and then brought it back, and now we're into 1980. But it's like, this show was put together very quickly. Yeah. And it may have just been, grab two of the writers, throw it, just do what you have to do, put a show together. We just need something to fill this slot. Right. And hopefully the lead-in from Different Strokes will be strong enough that something here might work in gel. Yeah. And I mean, interestingly enough... Once they brought in those other producers, it did. This didn't. Um, but it's like, uh, and this did surprisingly well in the ratings, considering how not good it is. Yeah, I just, you know, and, and the thing is, like, overall, like, it was, it wasn't bad. It had moments, you know, where where both of us sort of laughed out loud. Yeah. There were other moments where I was laughing and rolling my eyes. It's just like, oh, geez. Yeah. That is a painful punchline. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I, I don't. I didn't hate it, well, but th- it was just it was it was contrived in a way that I associate with that time period of mm. sitcom and television anyway. Yeah, where it's like you know we I feel like we are lucky enough right now to be living through a another golden age of television Agreed. where yes. the this the writing is so smart and they give their audiences so much credit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and especially, you know, and, and it seems in my mind, it seems to have kicked off with like the arrested development, you know, yeah. and sort of the, the, um, where, where it's like, once you start getting like TiVo and DVR and, and Netflix, where you can start pausing and going back, it's like, it just gets 
so smart. Mm-hmm. And the and the jokes become so dense and and it's like you know they write in a way where it's like you're not going to get this the first time you're yeah. going to get this the 10th time yeah, you're you going to want it. to watch it exactly. 10 times for that and and I think part of it is that I think it's generational too. I think the people creating television now were are people our age who were raised on TV like this. Right. And the fact that you know I'm I'm 50. I'm the age where you know this is where most people in in their field are coming into their own in their thirties, forties, approaching 50. Yeah. We are all people who are raised on this. If I were a TV creator, damn it. I silenced you before quiet <laughs> computer. Um, if I were creating a show now, the last thing I would want to do is have a bunch of hackneyed teenagers delivering these tired punchlines right. written by, you know, these writers, there were some writers in the seventies who had been writers in the dawn of television. Oh, like yeah. they were they were old men in the 70s, yeah. but they had written for they had written for Danny Kay. They had done the Sid Caesar show and yeah. all that. And it's like well, it's funny cuz I did I wrote down a line um after with the with the pizza thing where um she you know she she tells Tootie go go give the money back to the Waitress, to the waitress or yeah. whatever. And she goes, yeah, I guess somebody shouldn't miss out on a tip just because she's dumb or whatever the line was. Yeah. And and Mrs. Garris says, you're all heart. Um, and I wrote that line down because I'm um, also like very into Spider-Man mm-hmm. and I've been reading the old Steve Ditko, Stan Lee issues from 1963, 64. Oh. And that literally is something that Peter Parker says about J. Jonah Jameson. You're all heart. Every time money comes up. Oh. Because he's so tight with his money that yeah. it's always this ironic, like, you're all hard. And it was just funny because it's such an old-fashioned line. It's very 40s. That they it's were very, using. Yeah. yeah. And it was like Stan Lee was writing that in the early 60s. And now here we are yeah. in the in the beginning of the 80s, and it's still being used as a as a punchline. Yeah. You know? And it just struck me as like, ooh, that's an old line even then. Yeah. You know? we And you do see a lot of that. A lot of that influence, there's... Uh, there are two different re- references to Tootie uh, when there's one where Tootie's being pulled out of school. And she says, uh, well, it's not any good. My dad's making me leave e- Eastland. So it's two toot Tootie goodbye. <laughs> and there's a different episode where she's actually singing it. Again, Tootie, not Tootsie, singing her own name. Right. Where someone is like, hey, wouldn't it be funny to have her sing instead of Tootsie? She's going to sing Tootie. <laughs> yep. Not thinking that I was thinking it was a Jimmy Durante song, and it's like, no, it's a Jolson song that he used to perform in blackface, kids. Yikes. There's there's a sense of, oh, I it was Mike Marinaccio who pointed that out. I was like, oh, fuck, I didn't even think of that. And yeah. clearly they weren't thinking of that. Yeah. But it's or they like, were, Or it was just, it was just like comedic shorthand. There was just something about whatever that time was where it yeah. was like all you had to do was make the the general reference to it and your audience... Or at least a portion of them. Recognition. Yeah. They just, they got it. Yeah. You didn't need, you know. But yeah. it just, there's so much just forced laughter in this yeah. in this episode. Like it just, it kept cracking me up. How just un, <laughs> it was unfunny. Funny how unfunny it was. How unfunny the punchlines were. I was just like, no, no, you're yeah. doing this all wrong. And, and back to the laugh track, there is an early, I think it's episode, it's either the pilot or episode two where there was like a block of 10 minutes where at one point I heard a cough. And I was like, oh, are they still there? Right. Like, it was like, I know there's a live audience there. Yeah. They just haven't landed a joke in a long time. Yeah. And we clearly are, this is, this predates the era of the writers on the floor 
quickly rewriting on the set and throwing new lines at the actors and then doing a reshoot if the right. joke doesn't land as hard as they want it to. And it's and and that combined with no A and B story, this is this entire show for its nine years. This show ran nine years, Brett. Did it really? Nine. They run nine years nine out of this. Years. They okay. milked nine years. It changed forms. There's this, there's three seasons in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. There's two seasons where they run a bakery, and there's three seasons where they run a Spencer's Gifts. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Not actual Spence, but like a, a, a type. A, home, a hometown version of Spencer's Gifts. Okay. Yeah. I, I shit you not. Were there were were there characters that remained throughout? Yeah, Natalie, uh, Blair, Tootie, and Natalie appear in every episode from episode one to the very final one. Did Natalie get smarter? Because in this episode, she her lines made her out to be dumb yeah. as hell. No, she becomes very smart and Good. very savvy. Yeah, Good. no, Natalie's kind of awesome, and she's never acted before. They were visiting a girls' prep school to get ideas and things for the show and to talk and interview the girls to get some information about how to write the show. So mm-hmm. again, that was a little surprising to me. I'm like, they, they did research for this. This is what they came up <laughs> this with. This is what they with came up research? with. research? <laughs> yeah. But when they did it, she was one of the girls they brought in and Charlotte Ray was so entranced with her, with her personality. And she said, you know, she's fun and she's funny. She doesn't look like the other girls. That might be a good thing. Yeah. And they had, and so literally, Mindy Cohn, you are looking at the sixth time she's ever appeared in front of a camera. Wow. And yet she does, you can see her smiling a bit through her punchlines. Oh, she's yeah. trying to resist the laughing at her own jokes. Yeah. And, um, but the fact that she's not out, that out of place with these other girls, no. and she develops a razor sharp comic timing. Now, yeah. I mean, Mindy Cohn is, I, I still to this day, I want Mindy Cohn to be my best friend. Like I hear her in interviews and stuff. She is so freaking funny yeah. and sassy. And that's cool. Uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. So before we go, yeah, you were talking about, um, shows. I, I just want to touch on the fact that you are not only an actor, actor, Mm-hmm. As in you do legitimate theater. Yes. You also do, like I do, you do illegitimate theater, which is theme parks. Yeah. <laughs> That's the process of elimination. That's hardly illegitimate. I'm being ironic there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you uh, you do your art, your drawing, and you're also very, you're one of the featured players at SAC Comedy Lab. Yeah. You do a yeah. lot of the, which is Orlando's version of the Groundlings or Second City. That's the the sort of the quintessential improvisation school and playground yeah. here in Orlando. And yeah. you perform regularly there, right? Are you yep. with a regular company or? Um, yes. Uh, yes. I do the ensemble. So I'm there pretty much every Saturday. And then I have my own show uh, with uh, Adam Scharf mm-hmm. um, called Scharf and Walden. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also teach um, conservatory level there. And uh, yeah, so I'm there pretty much all the time. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that sort of ran parallel to, um, the drawing, like I said, I saw, I, I was kind of, I got into improv in the late nineties because of whose line is it anyway? Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, you know, it seems like every white male at the time was doing. Um, <laughs> and, and then when I saw that Scarlet Pimpernel moment where he improvised on stage, I went, Oh, this is how I can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, so I've been improvising for about 20 years, That's yeah. um, which is a long time. That is for being at your age, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very long time. Yeah, so, so uh, but yeah, I was lucky enough to to kind of move here and find SAC immediately, and 
Mm-hmm. I've been doing that for, um, I think, the, my sixth year wow. anniversary just passed there. So That's awesome. Sack, That's but, great. Yeah. I, I don't get over there as often as I'd like, and I really, really need to. It's fun. But it's also why, you know, it's like... Uh, I learned long form first, which is very narrative based. And so when I go mm-hmm. into things like this, it's the first thing that I notice is like the storytelling, yeah. you know, and I just, and I'm, I'm, I'm that annoying guy who watches commercials or bad movies or something and immediately just starts pulling apart the, yeah. the plot points, you, you know? And yes. so that was like the first thing I was, I just, I was noticing, I was just like, none of this hangs together. Yeah. Nobody would, nobody would act this way, even in a heightened sense. <laughs> And that's why you're the perfect guest for well, this show, because <laughs> and and particularly to help me dissect and uh, skewer a season one episode. This yeah. is this is perfect. Like I, I hate. I wrote this. I hate when characters ignore what other characters are saying just for the sake of the plot. Oh. Mm. The fact that Blair is sitting here going, I just need to say this one thing to yeah, you. I need to tell you something important. And he's just being so obtuse where he hasn't been that way throughout the entire no. rest of the episode. No. Except that if he listened to her now, we'd have to end it. Yeah. And so, of course, we have to, you know, he's just like, no, 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 no. You no, know, no. And she's, out the door, go rehearse your play. Yeah. I know what you want to ask. You want to. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's. Oh, oh I hate it. And exactly. she's just like literally shrugging on her way out. Like, yeah. oh, well, what can I do? Yeah, you know, well, and it's like anything. Say it. Yeah, exactly. Say it. Just say it. Yeah. You don't need to wait for his permission. Wow. But, um, well, last word is you yeah. also have a podcast. I do have a podcast. You have a podcast. And I'm inviting you onto it. And so. Probably I'm, to talk about. Is there, the I don't know what what am I obsessed about? What could I possibly talk uh, about? I think we uh, could I think we could <laughs> fill in some of the gaps yeah. of my facts of life knowledge. Uh, clearly, yeah. It's called um, "What Am I Missing," um, and it's uh, I invite people in and they just talk about things that um, that they're passionate about, mm-hmm. um, kind of their guilty pleasures. Sure, because um, I just I figured everybody has at least one. Oh God, yes. And uh, you know, and and it's it's funny. The more that I do it, the more I find that people after they get done recording, they go. That's going to be your worst episode. Oh, really? Yeah, because I I think it's something, I think it's, I invite people to come and talk about things that, that general society doesn't want to hear. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so people come in and they're not used to talking so much about these things that yeah. they've had to keep secret. Yeah. And or at so, least I'm at a party, I, I'm going to stop at five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, you know, to, to suddenly it's like, we've been talking an hour. Yeah. Y- you and I ha- right now have been talking an hour. Right. And it's like, you know, the idea that you would let me talk about the facts of life for an hour, I could fill it. Believe you and me. And that's, and, that, and everybody it does. It would be weird to do it. But after like, yeah, after you said like five or 10 minutes, you generally start to go like, you don't care about this. Yeah, Nobody let's move can, on you know? to the next thing. I've, I've made my point. And yeah. I sit there and go, no, I do care about it. Keep talking. Yeah. And that's when people start going, this is going to be the worst episode ever. <laughs> but the response has been great. Yeah. People listen to it and they, they love it and they learn. And it's just, that's been the most rewarding thing for me. I, I love that uh, when you announced it, I immediately jumped on the bandwagon from the beginning. So I love listening to it and hearing many of our mutual friends talking about stuff. And yeah, that's, that's great. So I, I look forward to it. I, I accept your invitation. I look forward to Excellent. being on it. Excellent. So thank you for being here. Of course. And for doing this, Brett Walden. Please can I just come say, back. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, I'm sure. sorry. Jason... I know, and this is going to come out later, and it may not be relevant anymore, but I do want to say that Jason, going to Yale, and mildly rapey, uh, oh. 
Oh, oh. In the early 80s. Dude. Jason becomes Brett Kavanaugh. He's a... (laughs) That boy grew up to be... We have a Supreme Court justice in the making right there. Brett Kavanaugh. There he is. For the the Trump era. And (laughs) I don't know how how much more strongly I could end on what better note we could end other than thank you. I look forward to having you back for a future episode. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Brett Walden. I still am blown away at his connection to this episode and that story about his editorial cartoon that, that I just re-listened and it's still blowing my mind that this was the episode we happen to connect on. That is just awesome. And uh, unlike Blair Warner, it seems that Brett suffered no consequences. So, Brett Walden, you are a monster. And I'm proud to call you my friend and thankful you took the time to come and be on my podcast. Listen to his podcast called What Am I Missing? You can find that on any of your favorite podcatchers. That's where you can hear more from Orlandoites and Central Floridians talking about their obsessions. And as you heard, I will be among them in the near future. Woohoo! That's all for this week's Let's Face the Facts. Connect with the show. You can do it on this thing that the kids call the internet. You just go to facethefactpod.com. And you can find supplemental information, photos, links to email, and follow the show on social media. If you can't figure that out, go to my website, davidalmeda.com. Click on the podcast button, and there you will find all the info you could possibly need. Next week, I'll be watching and discussing Season 1, Episode 8, Dieting, with another special guest. Thank you so much for listening to this show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you.